1: times a charm. <laughs> I'm Doc Coyle. This is the X-Man podcast. Three times a charm. This is my third time. I've been trying to do this uh, this monologue. I, I, I went off the, the deep end the last time. I not not like a crazy way. It was just it just wasn't very focused. And I pride myself on being focused to be able to get to the point. <laughs> At least I think so. I mean. Like some some of these monologues, I don't know. It can uh, it can it can go in a lot of different directions. So let's uh, let's try and tether it to something tangible. But no, I've been just usually what I'll do in these is try and encapsulate, I guess, something that's stuck in my head or stuck in my brain. It turns out there's quite a few things stuck in my brain the last week or so, and it's not so easy to tie them all together because I'd like to think that they're all connected, but they're really not. (laughs) There's personal quandaries, there's societal issues. Um, so the question is, what do you do? Do you, do you hone in on, on the personal or the broader, the broader scope of things? Uh, and I I think in today's day and age, maybe there's maybe it's one and the same. And I, th- I think maybe that's a big reason why everyone feels like everything is so just unmanageable because something happens halfway across the world and it, it feels so personal and we have this inability to disconnect. And if you do disconnect, then it's like, are you a nihilist? Are you apathetic? But then if you're connected to everything, everything in the world seems so hopeless or that you're involved in some big fight and here's your enemies. And I had an incident this week where, you know, I kind of got into it with a, with a buddy of mine. Listen, we were drinking, all right. Talking about conspiracies and things. And I was so like trying to, you know, when you're in that thing, when you're trying to sway someone to your side and you know, but it, it, it got out of control on, you know, on my end, um, and probably there as as well, I think we're both culpable and it's unfortunate to me, you know, because I, I, it's this idea, right. That theoretically, if we have a disagreement on something, the best way to, to deal with that is to talk about it. Right. But I feel like we're at, we've reached this point societally, at least I have personally where I'm like, I actually don't think it's worth talking about some of these things. And that's really troubling because a, I feel like, like, for example, with vaccines, right? Like that is such a personal thing, right? It's not just what people believe it's kind of who they are. So it's, it's kind of like the don't talk about politics or religion in public, which I made the great mistake of doing. Um, because then you're you're not only, if I criticize your logic on something or I provide an argument that goes against it, I'm kind of criticizing who you are. And so it, it makes everything like this, this third rail. I don't know, I've been, uh, I'm kind of obsessed with podcasts or YouTube videos about QAnon people or just people that believe weird shit. I can't get enough of this stuff. Uh, because I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by the idea of the capacity of the human mind to believe, and not only believe things, but to the detriment of everything else in their life. Right? Like there's a situation with uh, some basketball players in the NBA where in New York and in, in California, you need to be vaccinated to, you know, play at these venues. And there's some players where they're kind of willing to subjugate their whole career for the point of this belief right and uh and in their mind I I imagine uh, you know I, I've wanted to make this joke on on Twitter but I felt like I probably pissed too many people off where I, f- I feel like uh, people who were kind of loudly and proudly unvaccinated, See themselves as some cross between James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause, and uh, <laughs> William Wallace and Braveheart, Mel Gibson. Like it's half coolest guy in the room, half you know I'm I'm just this uh, freedom fighter who's willing to kind of die for their their beliefs. It's some somewhere in there, but it's it's inherently righteous. And I don't I don't I'm not, I don't mean that as a diss. I mean like they're very connected to the idea that they're doing something, um, courageous, which I, I suppose they probably are, um, to some degree for sure. But, uh, but anyway, I've kind of noticed that I actually think that where the lines are drawn in our divisions are not left, right anymore. It's not left, right. It's not liberal conservative. It's not Republican Democrat. It's actually the divisions exist between one side of people who tends to kind of still trust generally in governments and institutions and experts and scientists and me, you know mainstream media and uh just the big institutions and the the general idea of things and the people who don't so it's it's this kind of division between grand skepticism to the point of almost doomsday cynicism, right that and both sides kind of think the other sides are complete idiots, right? like if you're and 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 that and the reason why I say it goes beyond left and right is that it tends to veer on the extremes, right? So the far left and far right don't trust the government. Don't trust the quote unquote deep state. Don't trust the mainstream media, right? Don't trust the medical establishment. Go down, go down the list. And so they kind of have this union to some degree. So it's really maybe this disagreement between the center and the extremes or, uh, I don't know the normies and the non-normies, uh, (laughs) Bill Burr had this thing like, like you know where the sheeple and the rest and the the non-vaccinated are kind of like uh <laughs> that uh fonzies there's a bunch of just 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 cool motherfuckers right uh good one i didn't really put it as well as he did but i don't know i just i'm fascinated with this this fracture and it's making it more difficult to talk to people and connect because if you breach their beliefs and you try and penetrate it, the defenses go up and that's like tough because it's, you know, it's people I'm I'm friends with and I, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to, I don't even really want to convince them, but I, but I kind of (laughs) would, but I just don't know how. And I don't think, I don't don't think there really is a way. Um, so I, I just get really wrapped up in these ideas of, how do we i don't know turn the temperature down how do we get to be able to talk to each other again i don't know it's tough i don't i, I really don't have the answers but it's it's something i'm I'm definitely not going to stop being interested in because you it's like i listen to this one podcast about like people believe in lizard people <laughs> and uh and i'm just fascinated by that you know that like there's this real fine line between fiction and and when I say fiction, I mean, literal fiction, like books and film and stuff that we just make up out of thin air. And that to some degree that stuff becomes the basis for almost a religiosity, right? Like it's no coincidence that uh, L Ron Hubbard, who created Scientology was a science fiction writer. Right. And they and, the, and in this uh, this podcast was talking about lizard people. The whole concept of lizard people actually came from a book uh, from the guy who uh, created Conan. That was like the first like in the lizard people in the way that they're that they're talking about it. But I don't know. It's this this weird thing that the Internet and the social media has created a way for all these. Odd theories and kind of post rational um belief systems can can ferment i don't know it's just something and and, and i'm just worried about people so i don't know that that monologue kind of went nowhere but sometimes it's just me thinking out loud and like i said i don't know if it's three times a charm but we got through baby we got through all right enough of me running my mouth we do have a sponsor this week it's a band from Denmark, which I love. I love Denmark. Beautiful country, great bands. It's a band called Livlos. And we're going to play a track entitled, I have the title here. It's called The Purest Black. Check it out. Have it it's livlos with their track the purest black and I, I feel like that's a very appropriate title after listening to the song and guys what i try and do when i have bands sponsor the show i like i'll check it out when they email me like briefly but i try and not really listen to the song until i do the show so i can i, I keep my reaction fresh and i was feeling that all right that's some i just Something about European metal, man. They just, they can do something as Americans, we just can't do. They can tap into something and it's so dark and beautiful and just, ah, oh, makes me just want to be at a metal festival and just, you know, having the goblet in in the air. But anyway, uh, the way you spell it, the Livlos is Danish for lifeless, by the way, and you spell it L-I-V-L-O-S, but the O is like one of those O's with, the, with a line through it, which is some um, you know, some some Danish shit. All right, they're just it's some they're 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 doing their thing. But you can still Google the band with the regular O. But they're from Aarhus, Denmark. Formed in 2014, they have one LP out, one EP. Go check it out. And uh, they've played festivals like Copenhagen, Eurosonic. And the song you just heard is the second single taken from their forthcoming album, which is entitled. And then there were none. And that the title track is actually you can stream that already. Uh, there's music videos, I, f- I believe, for both songs. And that album will be available October 22nd this year through Napalm Records. All right, big time label. Spand is doing things. If you want to pre-order the album, head over to NapalmRecords.com backslash LiveLos or MerchCity.com backslash shop backslash livlos and they will also be embarking on a 27 date european tour entitled napalm over europe in april 2022 alongside 1914 and covenant it's not covenant it's covenant and also check out the band's website livlosband.com even though it's so interesting the the actual website it's l -L -L l-i-v-l-o-e-s they're doing it phonetically But anyway, Badass Band, thank you so much to them for sponsoring the show. It's always greatly appreciated. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you know what to do. Drop in the DMs or just send me an email to the X-Man Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is E-X. Boom. Okay, without further ado, we have another one of those guests that needs no introduction. I am in the presence, we are all in the presence of a true legend of heavy metal. His name's Gary Holt. I mean... Exodus, Slayer, that's it. I don't need to say, I don't need to say anything. I mean, he's got one of the most definitive and signature sounds guitar wise. And he's just someone that if you're in metal, you just love, you just love this guy. There's this, uh, remember Rob Flynn from Machine Head talking about someone I think when he was younger, someone, like, talking shit about Gary Holt and him, like, getting in a fight. Like, that's that's what people feel of Gary Holt. So, uh, when this opportunity came up to speak with Gary, of course, I jumped, I jumped at the opportunity. So, without further ado, just please enjoy this conversation with the legendary, absolutely legendary, Gary Holt. What's going, going on? Oh, you know, <laughs> my my world is crazy. <laughs> I see it. It's fucking nuts. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like no matter what, like, we're always in the weirdest timeline, right? Like, whatever was that kind of Murphy's Law idea that, you know, whatever's going to happen is always going to be, like, the thing you could predict the least, I suppose.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's probably true. I mean, I, I think in... Some ways we're all dealing with that shit right now. It's like yeah, yeah. The world today. what happened? <laughs> well, I say it's the internet happened.
1: social media yeah. happened. I don't yeah. think the I don't think the world out there is any different. I see people walking down the street smiling, whistling, walking their dogs. It's just we're tapped into like, um, it's like it's like the matrix, right? Like we're tapped into it turns out if you could read everyone's mind, what they were actually thinking was shit we really didn't want to know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Now, you know, I'm I'm with you there. I'm one of those guys who like, you know, the internet, what a fucking horrible invention.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like all tools, right? It's great and it's terrible, right? A hammer, I could build a house or I could kill you with it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah yeah totally absolutely you know and then you know like oh amazon you know i can order something i really don't need and have it right now and then at the end of the month you're looking at your credit card statement like what the fuck am i doing buying all this shit i just bought
1: this <laughs> a, a real pro camera which i don't even know how to work yet amazon i ain't gonna lie i'm you know it's like we'll complain about the problem but we're also all, all a part of the problem
2: well <laughs> oh, i'm a huge part i bought my wife a super awesome camera I almost just like it on amazon <laughs> of course Dude, They got a payment plan now. They see they done messed up, Did <laughs> dude. I didn't yeah, know that.
1: and like uh, interest free. I, I got that. Um, like you do like one kind of big payment to start, and then it's like break it up into six payments. I'm like, all right, I had no
2: idea. I'm on board. I think I just had an earthquake. Are you serious? Yeah, where are you? The whole house just went, boom. where are you? Where do you live? I'm in Meadow Vista, California. I live up north of Sacramento. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm in Long Beach, so yeah. Sometimes wow, sure.
1: if it's if it's in the right place, it'll kind of get. Because I remember we were in um, the Valley, and there was an earthquake in Bakersfield, and I was watching. So we felt it was pretty bad, and I was watching a basketball game in Vegas, and they had to stop the game because the uh, the PA speakers were swinging.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how that far. That was just kind of weird. It went. I, you
1: know, I usually don't even notice those things. <laughs> like me either. I didn't notice. Dude, I used to live in, a you know, like the fourth floor of like a pretty, you know, big building, and I would never. People would tell me they're like, "Oh, those earthquakes." I'm like, I had no idea. Same here. Same here. Like <laughs> this one though was just a sudden shudder and then nothing, so it's kind of weird. Well, listen, earthquakes aside, welcome to the X-Man podcast. Thank you. You're you're someone that, you know, you've always been in in the back of my mind, but I I did the had the mistake of listening to you on rob Flynn's podcasts and i was like i'm like i don't think like he you tell the whole story of everything on there i'm like and and rob is from the bay area he's from that scene he knows it better than i do i'm like there's no way i could kind of tell that story and you're someone who's fairly outspoken in general and you do a lot of stuff so i'm like i just had to figure out a way to have a conversation hopefully that feels somewhat unique given that's all
2: right i'm all, down let's see what happens
1: <laughs> yeah no 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 but i listen because um there's so many great shows out there and especially like someone like rob where you have a personal connection and just the, mm-hmm, yeah. just hearing you guys tell stories and stuff it's like you know it's it's such being on the inside so i'm i just you can't yeah, you, you can't totally. you can't replicate it. it was and it was great stuff i loved it i loved it uh so awesome i was trying thing. to oh no problem no problem so with with regards to to this conversation, like I said, I figure we'll just we'll just figure it out as, as as we go. But I want to talk about kind of right now. Right now, uh, I saw you have a new album coming out, first Exodus record in what seven years?
2: Seven years, I think. S- seven, yeah, seven something years.
1: Like you, that. New song out called "The Beatings Will Continue." Excellent as always. And so the the connection I have with this is I, I was watching the making of videos, and you're working with Steve Liguti. mm Yeah. So Steve actually got his start touring as like a sound engineer with God forbid, with
2: my own. I know, I know, I know it. He worked so, for, obviously you got to start with you guys. He worked with Exodus for a couple of like, you know, went to South America with us and stuff before he got the machine head, you know, permanent job basically. And, um, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, uh, if the pandemic hadn't happened, we were going to fly Andy Snape out, you know, but just, uh, international travel we were worried we'd get them here and can't get them home and stuff you know crossing borders and all that and uh that was thinking who do i know who's proficient in pro tools that's all i do <laughs> you so you're here... like you know and who do i know that i know i could work with and like laguti and i called him up and yeah he owns a little bit of some pro tools fucking <laughs> lot. and we flew it all out just like this huge pro tool studio of gear it was epic Dude, he he actually I I had him on the show
1: because in a lot of ways he like saved God forbid's career because we were like you know we were going through a member change and I was like going through a depression and I just did you know and he basically put together helped put us put together these demos like we didn't have a record label we you know he mm-hmm. you know we did we were just on our last legs and he you know it's kind of same thing a much smaller more. um, humble version of the pro tools rig, but you know, but he, and he did it for free, you know, just because he loved he loved the band, you know? So I always have a, a great affinity for Steve because he's so, you know, he kind of prays to the altar of
2: heavy metal over, over just. He was amazing to work with. You know, when I talked to him, I said, you know, all I really care about is does the guy know what he's doing, which obviously he does. And would he like, throw a fit if i like said you know i think we should hang a cab from the ceiling and mic it up from down the road and or hang it up in the tree up front you know <laughs> would he be willing to try anything and he was like whatever you know, I don't care you know it's all fun you know and uh, we had a good time we recorded in the worst air quality index you could imagine because of the fires that were going on Jesus. and you know we have video it's on the the making of the album dvd that comes as a bonus with some versions and we got steve outside smoking in the middle (laughs) of a smoke storm we're like dude what are you doing man it's like the most unhealthy air and he's outside smoking it's crazy
1: well uh, well, he he does have his vices and uh he's just a a new york smoking motherfucker uh yeah he is so kind of speaking of that and some of these recording techniques um one thing I've always been fascinated. So actually, like, let me kind of preamble this with a story. So one of the first shows I ever played, maybe the second or third show, was God Forbid. Before we were called God Forbid, four out of the five members still the same band, we were called Insalubrious, named after the Carcass Record. Uh, <laughs> we opened, <laughs> we, like, we sold tickets at a place called Obsessions in Randolph, New Jersey, to open for the... Exodus reunion with Paul Bailoff and Skin Lab. Yeah, so yeah, I remember. See, and the only really interaction we had was uh, Jack. We had a we had a female bass player at the time, attractive female bass player, and Jack hit on our bass player. Nothing bad. It was just you know he was you know he's, he's just working the <laughs> room. So, I get it. I get I like it. That. <laughs> that was the only real interaction. But watching the show, I just. Was just blown away by the guitar tones. I was just like, holy, it was just like the heaviest, biggest, in your face guitar sounds. And obviously a lot of that comes from the hands. Of course, you can't uh yeah. you can't you can't really replace that. But is there a secret to the excess guitar tone? Cause there's definitely something that's very consistent through the years that there's a sound. That I don't know if it's just you Um, or is it an amp? Is it a pedal? Is it a thing? Or is this, it is, say secret.
2: That's kind of hard to say. I guess, you know, you'd have, since I have over the years have changed amps like, you know, several times, but now I'm fully back for life on Marshall. The show you were talking about, I was still traveling with my 1987 modded 800s, you know, and they're retired. And Andy Sneap calls them the Holy Grail 800s. He said he's never heard of anything like them. Tempo of the Dam is two tracks of guitar straight in, you know. And um, but now they're retired. I, I when I use my Kemper, I use a profile of that app though. Hmm. But um, I guess it's hands, you know. Since I've used PV, I've used Engel. Uh, but you know, um, most of what I do with my sound now is uh, some sort of form or another of a parametric mid EQ. Oh, it allows me to dial in. A little bit of that wah pedal frequency, you know, and then back the level of it off so it doesn't sound like a wah, but it allows you to get that, <laughs> that super aggressive mid. Uh, my, Kirk, my pedal with Kirk, you know, the paranormal, that's what it is. It's basically a tube screamer and a single band parametric. See? I,
1: it, now, so this isn't divulging state secrets because, you know, there's a lot of thrash metal guitar players out there who are, you know, they've been searching for that sound. So hopefully... Yeah. You know, you just didn't
2: give give away the store right there. <laughs> no, I did try right because the hands still play a game, play a role. But uh, I used to use a Pre Sonus, a little three band parametric that was about a little half rack size thing, and I only ran the mid band, and uh, it allowed me to get that super aggressive mid that an amp doesn't typically have. You know, when I run the modded Marshalls, I've never needed it because they kind of had that sound already. So I was trying to like make other amps kind of follow suit. And, um, you know, I did the same on the new album. The new album, we went really old school. I was buying vintage BBE Sonic Maximizers on eBay. <laughs> like, just adding a little thump to it, it was fucking rad. Those, they they were never expensive, right? There was like, you can get a for like
1: 100, 200 bucks, right?
2: Yeah, the, you know, the older ones, they're harder to get now. You know, they sound different than the new ones. But I ran that and um, a Super Overdrive and a Pro, uh, Proton's Pedaled uh, a signature mid pedal that I have and just was able to dial that mid range in there. And it's like, works every time. So, but you're using the Real Amps, not the Kemper on the
1: recordings. Yeah, Real Amps, Marshall Jubilee. I saw actually saw that in the video and that's Slash is my favorite guitar player. So I'm like, before I die, I have to get a Jubilee just for like- They're amazing.
2: They're amazing. Slash is one of my heroes too. Guys, intonation on his bends is perfect. Yeah. Never it's, out of tune, you know. Just perfectly tuned you know, player, you know, who doesn't overbend the note, underbend, it's always just right on pitch, you know.
1: I, I equate that to uh I went to art school for like literally or I was in art class in college for one semester and I realized I couldn't draw a line, just a straight line. And the It's hard. Band, it's one of the hardest to- things to do yes but bending a note into key is kind of like the guitar version of drawing a straight line like it seems like it should be the easiest thing in the world but just you know just having and i think that's also just like your ear development like some people bend Mm -hmm. at a key they don't realize they're at a key yeah
2: you know i'll I'll over bend sometimes and like oh i'm past the note so just keep bending you'll find a new one (laughs) you'll eventually and i do that all the time and like you know (laughs) know, I'll see these pictures out with Slayer, and I'm bending the strings halfway across, like, fucking all the way across the fretboard, and, like, it looks cool, sounds cool. Probably, like, overshot the note, and so I just kept going. Listen, <laughs> at least, at least, at least with,
1: with Slayer, it's chaotic enough that, you know, it's almost jazzy yeah. in that, in that yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Everything's think, you know, kind of miss, key
2: If I miss the A, you know, just keep pushing it, and I'll hit the B eventually. <laughs>
1: Was that a weird thing playing with Slayer? Because uh, you're obviously like using a tone that's the Slayer tone. Was that like a weird adjustment, or are you just like I'm in, I'm playing with Slayer, so I just kind of do what they do.
2: No, I, I use my own rig from oh really ever Damn. since the first tour. Damn. You know, cause first tour I showed up and it was the gear there, and I did get to dial it a bit, but after that, you know, I was going for the Bay Area crunch as much as I could. You know, they didn't clash and it worked fine and. You know, I I switched Marshalls a couple of times till so I found the Jubilees and like, all right, I'm home now.
1: So, all right. And so. uh,
2: but you know, it just you know, I had to be comfortable playing, you know, like uh, and um, gotta make it work with their hand, you know. Yeah, well,
1: it's funny because I, you know, I had the good fortune to do two separate tours with Slayer with the original lineup, and that was an absolute blessing, obviously. But one thing I noticed about Jeff was. Like I, one, like I got his picks and he had, and it's just totally weird. Like I said, just from a guitar player standpoint, he would use these super thin bass picks. Mm-hmm. And he had a very kind of unorthodox st- uh, picking style. You know, it was a little, yeah. he, was, he almost, and if, you, and if you went on his side and let, listen to him play, it was a, a little more almost punk. Like wasn't quite yeah. as like, you know, tuned in with the... The crazy like tight down picking like Carrie. and that I think that uh led a lot to the energy of the way Slayer, sure, Slayer sounded, sure. sounded live. But I have to say, when you joined the band, just it got a lot more, almost machine like and kind of just punishing and tight and, and a little tighter in my in, in my opinion.
2: Well, I mean, you know, that's how I try to approach rhythm guitar playing. It should be like a machine, you know. Um Should you know, I try to play as percussive as I can, you know, some i did adjust some of that to slayer like um a little more open muting you know like yeah not as heavy muting like you know i tend to mute like fucking up past that bridge pickup you know yeah how do you not push the floyd rose out of tune i've been playing floyd Rose since i was fucking walking you know like <laughs> i'm just used to it you know and um yeah i just tried to play it tight you know i, I hadn't been to a slayer rehearsal in years I never went to rehearsal. If Carrie and Paul are tight, I did my homework at home. I played along to all the the possible songs that I knew rather than just what the set would be. I was prepared to play anything. And then, you know, as long as those those two are, you know, locked in, I'd lock in with Carrie. You know, I always had a single wedge that just had Carrie in it on my side, you know, so I could hear him from all the way over there. And, um, you know, they didn't care. You know, they were never like, when are you coming to practice? Like, you know, you're going to harass me for practice when I come up and I'm show up and I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> you know, plus I'm lazy. I want to stay home. You know, I don't want to go to practice. <laughs> I'm already going to be gone six weeks. You know, who wants to go down and tag on a week or whatever more onto that? See, that's just how good you are. See me, I have to go to practice because I'm just
1: I'm like, I don't know about you. I have nightmares about not being prepared for gigs. Like, I don't know if that ever happens to you where I I can't find the stage, I I can't find my cable. So I'm like, anything I can do to kind of like, I've done all the work, everything is cool.
2: (laughs) I mean, everybody's different, you you know. But like I said, you know, I just, I'd play along to the songs, you know. I'd put on the headphones and make sure I knew all the parts and the right hands was good. And as long as those two were tight, you know, it's like, you know, I'm locked in more with Carrie than I would with the drums, you know. Yeah. Well, like I said, and, you know, I said, when I wanted to hear a little more carry, I'd walk over by that one wedge, and then when I didn't want to, I'd walk over, you know, in front of the hurricane that was coming on my, out of my backline. <laughs> ridiculous, six cabs on and side fills and wedges. Were you on? You have earplugs, or you just you just? No hell no. What? <laughs> <probably> what? <laughs> no. What? Yeah, I, I have a hearing aid. I married her. It's called my wife. <laughs> Well since we're talking about
1: Slayer, uh, you know I kind of I guess we're gonna do this a little bit out of out of order, but that's that's perfectly fine. Um, so I just kind of want to talk about this idea of you know you're a legend in in your own right. you know, you were Gary Holt before you pl- played with Slayer. But you know, I think for a lot of us in the metal scene, that felt like a very validating moment where essentially, you know, despite all the success Exodus did have, the band still always felt underground, in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And so it was like, oh, Gary Holt, for us, finally gets a chance to get, to be on the big stage, to play in front of the big audiences, to do that thing. I mean, was that moment, and especially because it was Slayer and clearly they weren't just going to pick just anyone to fill that that role mm-hmm. um was that
2: moment particularly validating for your career um i guess maybe in some ways it did it certainly increased my profile you know like um i'm still like shocked i have that people find me uh, as interesting as they do on instagram <laughs> I just don't know why I miss myself. <laughs> you know? people say, well, you're like super successful. I'm like, no, I'm just social media successful, which is like phony and not real. <laughs> but, you know, you don't think it, you're it, successful. It, it, yeah, I think I'm successful, but I don't I'm still surprised if someone recognizes me. You know, it's kind of weird. Um, someone who's not wearing a, a battle vest. Put it that way. <laughs> you know, when I'm at the airport, like I've just played Full Terror Assault, and I come home, and and I'm walking through the airport with a fucking mask on, and I got recognized, and but but then I I tend to forget I'm covered in tattoos that are probably recognizable, because to me, recognizable tattoos is carrie King, you know,
1: yeah,
2: shit running up on his head and stuff. You know, I don't see myself as having that many uh, distinguishing marks, but uh, you know, it was cool. You know, the best thing to me about Slayers, I. My role in that band was like, uh, I guess I'd refer to it as like when Steve Vai, and I'm not Steve Vai, but when he was in Frank Zappa, his role, they called him the stunt guitarist. And uh, (laughs) I just call myself the Slayer stunt guitarist. Because, you know, one thing I didn't realize when I joined Slayer is how many solos I'd have. There were songs where i like solo way more than I do in anything Exodus does. You know, I'd have like two or three in one fucking song. And, and, you know, it was kind of cool. I got to just go out there and tread and just go nuts and it was fun i enjoyed it well it's funny watching you play live
1: because when i think of gary holt i think of rhythm but then i go to the shows i'm like oh no this dude shreds as hard as just about anyone um and it's kind of it's weird because usually it's the inverse right With if you're a really great lead guitar player then that tends to overshadow the rhythm chops
2: rit- tend to suffer yeah there's yeah. a lot of that and that's because people like the, I think it's mostly because of laziness, you know, playing really good rhythm and, you know, requires work. Yes. Requires way more work and way more stamina than playing super fast lead. I mean, if I had to give up one, I'd give up lead playing in a second. Yeah. Cause it's not near as fun as playing rhythm. You know, If like, Oh, you could be like <laughs> as good as like Zach wild or whatever, but your rhythm chops are going to be like CC DeVille. I'm going to like keep my rhythm chops <laughs> You know, because at least, you know, most of the song you're playing rhythm, you know, it's just a small percentage of shredding and I'd rather the bones of the song be strong. So how do you, so this is something
1: I, I always struggle with because, you know, I was in a band that had, you know, really rigorous rhythm rhythm chops and then I kind of got away from that, you know, when I, I left the band, I was doing all different kinds of styles, but it's this thing of like, and I and maybe, the, maybe this happens to you, maybe it doesn't, where... If you don't keep up that engine, right? If you don't keep the oil going and you don't keep the engine greased, then all of a sudden you come back to it and your your speed and your stamina is gone. I mean, is it something? Does that happen to you, or
2: you kind of you come pre greased? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, years ago, long before Slayer, there were times I took like a few months off from practice, and and then we'd show up for rehearsal. When we did use rehearsal a lot, and uh, we'd try, all right, let's do Strike of the Beast. I'm like, it's one of the first riffs I ever wrote, and I can't keep up on it. (laughs) <laughs> i'm like struggling but that passes that goes away so i've made a conscious effort ever since then and that was like maybe around 2006 2007 when i, I felt that way you know like so i try to play as you know, enough to keep the chops going in the last few years i've been dealing with this like chronic tennis elbow you know mm. fucking lateral epicondylitis in both arms and uh, to keep the Slayer engine rolling, you know, I've had more cortisone injections than I can remember. I honestly don't know how many. Wow. And um, the last successful injections I had were prior to re- recording the new Exodus and gathering with Tom to write the stuff. And um, towards the end, when I tracked the rhythms to the beatings, that's when I blew out the right one. Did all that down picking, it just shredded and, and when I finished the album, it was super depressing. I didn't play guitar for about six months. If you totaled it up, about 20 minutes, I just couldn't. It hurt too bad. And then I got MRIs, and my tendons are shredded. Just all those injections basically turned my shit to mush. Yeah. And uh, my left elbow, it, if you read the description of what was wrong with it in the MRI, it said I, every result was I needed Tommy John surgery. What's I that? Mean, I had—that's a fucking for a pitcher, yeah, you know, a baseball pitcher. When they tear the fucking tendon and the ligaments in the elbow, named after the first player that ever had it, Tommy John. And um, but I have a friend uh, who's a San Francisco Giants team hand doctor. He put my results through to their like elbow guy, and he said no, he just needs like super vigorous rehabilitation. So I did like I've been doing physical therapy for a few months now and I can play. I played two shows. I don't know how a tour is going to feel. Yeah. But you know, you know, as far as chops, you know, I'm just happy I can play it all right now. I let me ask you, let you your question right is here. that
1: were you doing something incorrect or was it just uh, just the wear and tear of doing it for years and
2: years? Wear and, and tear, you know, and what happens is uh that forearm gets too tight and it starts pulling on that corner right there. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, and I was going to the gym, and I was working out a lot, and I probably aggravated it there. And I never got a proper diagnosis to fix it, which would have required me to not play for a while. Yeah. You know, to take it easy and stuff. But I was on tour so much, you know, just put another needle in, do it. Shit hurts like fuck, but go for it. And uh, in the end, it, like, fucking almost ended me. You know, That's fucking horrible shit.
1: Well, I, I would say, because, you know, I had, I had Lombardo on, on the show, and I, and I say, you guys are essentially the lab rats, the test subjects for how, how long can people play extreme music? Because you
2: basically invented the fucking thing. <laughs> so it's, it's, so it's, it's kind of remarkable because, you know, how long it can go, you know, cause Dave is still got the best feet in the business, you know, and, um and, uh Exodus records are much diff- more difficult to play than Bonded by Blood and that stuff, even though there's some stamina involved there. The newer shit is, like, brutally fucking difficult, you know, especially on a on a right-hand stamina level. You know, some of the shit is just like, what the fuck, you know? Like, yeah. uh, on um, Exhibit B on the song Good Riddance, you know, that shit is so brutal. And then it got to the middle uh, triplet, uh, you know, riff change and it we thought the tempo would be the same and uh we had to slow it down because you know it doesn't feel slowed down but it was like i can't even play that fucking thing at the same tempo as the other riffs
1: do you ever have songs that you record on the record and they're really fast and really crazy and then you just go you know we're just not gonna play that live because it's just it's just too fucked up
2: (laughs) well for us sometimes it's uh it's the 11-minute epics, you know, like the title track of the Atrocity Exhibition. It's like, it's one of my proudest compositions and it's never been played and probably never will, you know, it's just, it's so much shit going on. We would actually have to rehearse a lot. Yeah. <laughs> rather <than> not.
1: <laughs> no, I'm thinking about the, the last God forbid record we did. There was just one song. It's like, it's not that crazy, but it's just, basically it was a situation where when I recorded it, everything is just d- down picking yeah. and – since i have in my old age, I become a bitch. Now I'm like I have to fake it and alternate pick it, and I feel like I wouldn't want to bullshit it. So yeah. I don't know.
2: I know, I like uh, you know, there, there's things like some of the down picking shit I did in my sleep. I'll I'll do like a hybrid version, you know, like like sometimes it's just the first two notes that getting in there, you know. So I'll go I'll go down up down 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 up, you know, just that one oh, little break. on Yeah, I'm and shit like that.
1: So I, I filled in for for Lamb of God like a decade ago, and the and their songs really are frustrating because a lot of their stuff rides right in that middle ground between where you want to down pick and alternate pick it, and mm-hmm. Mark Morton is like the best alternate picking rhythm player like I've ever seen. Like he can alternate pick anything and make it sound just really tight, and it's just it's frustrating yeah. when you when you encounter people that can kind of have these other skill sets and you're just like all right well yeah guess i just have to get better
2: <laughs> now everybody does things differently like uh like i'll do this picking that andy Sneap can't wrap his head around and he's like how do, i don't even get it and i'll tell i call it the waltz picking and it's like it's just like a waltz. It's like one two three one two three one two three and every one is a down you know yeah and um and uh, to me, like if the drums are going, you know, I'll go instead of. Yeah. So I'm accenting that snare in that first beat, and I do it all the time. I always have. I didn't know everybody else didn't do it. And Andy's like, "What are you doing?" And like, I can't. And you'd try it, and like, I can't do it. I'm just going, one two three, one two three, one two three, like that. And um, you know, everybody's got their things, their little tricks they do. They got. We all got our little cheats, you know. Yeah, I've seen but- Hatfield cheat.
1: <laughs> dude that well that's that's the one dude i just he's so, the master so I, I was on when i was on tour with them it Was actually on that same land of god tour they played through the never for the first time in 12 years whatever it was and they have this room called the tuning room where they rehearse but also the mix engineer will mix the previous night's show because you the way metallica does it, you can listen to uh the show you went to for free they'll send you the show where yeah. you have a link And so I walk by the room and he has Hetfield's guitar soloed out and it's just on the verse that and he's singing and playing and it's so perfect. And I'm just like, I'm just shaking my head. I'm just like, what, whatever Hetfield is doing, you know, we all need to be sipping
2: from that, that fountain because it's just, it's not fair. You know, when I, you know, like every guitar player, we go through those like neurotic moments. Like, you know, if you're struggling a little, you start like trying a hundred different picks, even yeah. though you end up at the one you've used since you oh, were a kid Dude, no, or you I got start holding it with different this. fingers. Yeah. I've got a jar just like you. Of all these different d- different picks. picks. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, he holds his pick with that like middle finger. Yeah. Yeah, and I've tried that and I'm totally uncomfortable doing it, but I'm a little faster at down picking when I hold it that way.
0: Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one time on tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry
2: pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream, and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion,
0: and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: Well, I play even weirder, because I kind of play like him, but I play It's the Middle Finger and and the the pointer finger together and yeah and it's and i've same thing i've everyone else plays with with you know just two their thumb and then their their pointer finger and i and i'll try and do that just to go like am i fucked up like am i really and i think i kind of am fucked up because there's certain things that i think are easier for other people but then i go you know what this makes me sound like me so yeah yeah
2: Exactly. I mean, the way I've always held the pick, I kind of get a scrapey sound from the edge of the pick, from the angle I hold it at, at, on everything. And like, you know, once again, you know, Andy Snape sitting in the studio, noticing these things and stuff. And it's kind of part of my sound is there's a little scrape along with all my pick attack, you know. Other guys get this perfectly clean, you know, like that. And mine's got a little, you know, and just what makes me me i guess you know well i think we just i think we lost all
1: the non-guitar players for the last 10 minutes that's all right that's right now we got rid of the losers
2: (laughs) (laughs) well it's i can talk i can talk guitars all day i love this shit no me too but it's actually go ahead sorry i i still love the damn instrument i'm still in love with it as much as i was when i was a kid i still look at guitar porn you know like oh look at that look at that burl (laughs) wow are you a collector? Do you collect all kinds of different stuff? Um, yeah, I got a lot of guitars. I, I don't collect as much as some guys, you know, it's like, um, but I've got a, a storage unit for my guitar. So I guess I've got a problem. <laughs> or maybe you have a. I solution. can't keep them at home. There's too many. And I live in a fire zone. So, you know, that's not a good idea. Oh, I get that. I,
1: I I get that. So I actually want to ask one more Slayer question, but before, before we kind of move sure. on from that, um, so you had that kind of feeling of being involved with that. But do you feel that being a part of that for as long as you were, do you feel like um, essentially that it changed you or influenced you, like being around there, that environment, seeing the way a, a bigger band works, or just or just being like. Hey, I'm kind of a big shot for X amount of years. And you feel like I'm Gary Holt from Exodus and Slayer now, as opposed to the guy that walked into that gig.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, have got almost 10 years vested in the band. Um, I guess I've earned my right to call myself a guitarist from Slayer, but you know, I, I'm perfectly happy taking a shower in some shitty dressing room, fucking backstage <laughs> shower it, where you got to wear your flip flops or something because you don't want to stand barefoot on it. I'm perfectly fine with that shit. Yeah. You know, I, I, I enjoyed the level of travel I had with Slayer. I, I think that there's one thing that made life easy for me, it was that, um, but I, I'm perfectly happy. Like in being down in the bowels and the gutters of heavy metal it, i I love it yeah born there and still live there <laughs> well uh yeah you didn't you didn't let the experience uh spoil you <laughs> no no i went right back out on tour with exodus a month later you know right in the pandemic and had the best time i ever had would you tour you guys don't tour in a van though you wouldn't do that right Those, no 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 okay we, we tried that once back in the early two thousands. And I'm talking for a Southern California trip, you know, just some LA and San Diego and, uh, and shows like that. And uh, let's just, you know, make some extra cash and we'll just get a van. And we were complaining before we ever got to LA. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm going to sit in the front, man. This is it. You know, roll window up. <laughs> like, we're them too old for that shit, but I've done my, I've paid my dues.
1: No, I, I, I know it's, it's, it's fascinating. Cause I, I remember, Seeing you guys, and this was kind of, I guess, part of the mid two thousands kind of comeback time when Rob was in the band and the records. Like, it seemed like the band almost kind of similar to what uh Testament had done, where they had kind of modernized the sound of the band, and I felt like those those records with Rob, it felt like, oh, it's it's it, this ain't your uh, your grandma's Exodus records. It's like a new thing where it seemed to fall along a lot more in line with what was going on with extreme music of that time. But I saw you guys open up for Hatebreed. I think it was Hatebreed and Blocked Alley and Murder. Yeah and, yeah, and seeing that, it really felt like the crowd, and maybe that was just that the crowd that day or what I was seeing where it felt like the crowd was still kind of getting used to the band again. And then I remember seeing you guys headline in uh, LA, the House of Blues, maybe a year or two later, and it was like a great crowd. People were pumped up. And it seemed like something seemed to happen in the culture where thrash metal, especially uh, bands with like, you know, that that classic name and had built this kind of thing that felt were part of it. All of a sudden, this new audience seemed to show up. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it was like the whole thing came full circle. Um, I mean, is that something that you can attest to?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, when we... Came back with Tempo of the Damned and stuff. people would, uh, you know, how's it feel to be like, at, uh, you know, the vanguard of this thrash renaissance. And I'd like we just played for 18 people in Colorado Springs. I'll tell you about it when that happens. (laughs) And then it seemed like, you know, we just kept struggling, but we kept going. And eventually, you know, why why did five minutes ago a a 14 year old kid come up and want to know stories about Paul Bailoff thrashing houses? that's kind of weird. Something's going on. You know, this kid was far from being born at the time when it happened and he wants to know all about it. Then we noticed our crowd was getting really young, you know, it's like, it wasn't just like some old guys sitting at the bars, but it's kids. And then it just kind of grew. And then I actually did see like a thrash metal Renaissance, you know, it's like, you know, but we paid our dues in the beginning. We paid them to get back, you know, um, when we decided to like get our shit together Get sober.
1: Yeah, I think, Uh, I I mean, I think a lot of things kind of happen all at the same time because you had a whole new group of newer bands, be it Municipal Waste or Havoc, kind of reintroducing that. But I think sometimes, you know, and maybe it's just a nostalgia thing or enough time has to pass, but almost like, especially when a band breaks up, then almost they become more legendary in people's minds. The, the myth making happens. And I think around that time too, you started to have a lot more documentaries about the history of yeah. thrash, thrash metal. And so it becomes this thing of lore, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and so you just wait enough time and all of a sudden it's like something that wasn't cool. Just you wait enough time, all of a sudden it becomes cool again.
2: Yeah, I guess so, you know, all, all things become cool again and all roads lead somewhere positive. I guess so. I don't know. Actually, it's one of those bands that we've always had terrible timing. You know, like, you know, we did the reunion with Paul probably a couple years too soon. But if we did it a couple years later, it probably never happened. You know, so all things for a reason. I I don't I'm not a guy who ever like sits around and snivels about his regrets and all this and that. You know, there's a lot of people out there who would kill to like have been able to basically live a life of a a toddler for like. (laughs) you know decades you know and just you know <laughs> i'm just now in the last 10 years becoming a responsible human being you know
1: well i'm still i'm still trying to figure that one out so i need to take some yeah
2: take takes some don't notice. be in a hurry <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know I, i'm learning now though that like now that i quit drinking i'm learning that the party didn't end because i don't drink it's still fun i had as yeah. much fun as i ever did at full terror assault and without a drop of alcohol in me you know it's like you know, you know, prolong the fun, you know, yeah. and I'll have fun longer. Do you, um, has it changed? Like,
1: you feel like you're more productive now or more kind of like relationships are better? Like what what's kind of changed in your life going sober? I mean,
2: my relationship at home with my wife is better because I was starting to become an asshole, you know, like, you know, cause I'm kind of depressed. I was, you know, I'm sitting around and I got this wonderful piece of property up in the hills and I'm sitting around and I can't do what I want to do that is play live, and so what I could do... Because of the the pandemic, you mean? ...that way to me was sit around and get drunk. Yeah. And usually when I come home from the tour, I don't drink much. I watch football and have a couple beers, or someone comes by to barbecue, where I was sitting around pounding beers, like buying, like, these triple IPA, 12% alcohol, and, like, drinking 12 of them. Jesus. (laughs) Fucking hammering. And then I run out of beer, and someone left some White Claw behind from a barbecue, and I drank that, you know? (laughs) And uh, just kind of becoming a miserable person. Uh, I'm a lot happier now. As far as productive, I always got shit done. You know, like uh, when I was drinking, I, you know, I worked all day on shit. And then come like late afternoon, early evening, start pounding them down. Well, and, and, but I'm saying, but
1: now you're just like, you just feel not actually, let me, re- let me rephrase re- uh, that. Do you think this was directly tied to just the pandemic and being locked down and not, like you said, be able to do the things you wanted to do?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, you know, when it came to the world of drinking on tour, I was a teetotaler compared to most. I'm a beer drinker. I love beer. I do little baby tiny shots, you know, celebratory, mostly symbolic. We call them Bellow certified. You have to Frank Bellow, you know, because all right, felt Frank, you want to do a shot? He go, make it bellow certified, which was like about a quarter of the way full. You know, I've even done this before with Carrie, like when I didn't want it like over the shoulder, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and then I come home and I wouldn't drink at all. Well now I was drinking shitloads at home. What was going to happen when I went on tour? Yeah. I was afraid once I had get on tour where I'm given an endless amount of the shit, I was going to develop a real serious case of alcoholism. So, you know, well, people ask, you know, how would you quit? I'm like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't physically in need. I didn't drink every day. But when I did, I drank too much. And instead of having fun and laughing, I was kind of miserable. It was affecting my moods, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people went through that during the pandemic. I think it became yeah, totally. me, me included where once I was drinking a lot, a lot, it just became day drinking just became normal because you had nothing else fucking better to do. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> yeah, and... um. But, you know, I, I discovered that a lot of people I know in music that I didn't know were sober are sober, you know, and I had a lot of people reaching out, you know. You know what 17-year-old Gary Holt thinks that about Rob Halford sending him a message of encouragement? You know, it's, I'm still, like, starstruck by that, you know, like, you know, Rob Halford texted me. Oh, shit. He said, <laughs> hang in there. You need anything? You know, one day at a time is what he said. And it's 90 days now. I feel great that's awesome man well no dude I one thing I've noticed and it's definitely a a theme on
1: this show and you you speak to enough and tour with enough and be around enough veteran musicians especially ones that become successful and have a career to protect is that you know once you get to a certain level it just seems like at least half if not more of of the guys over 40 tend to really get sober because it's just so it's I don't think uh you know p- people who aren't involved in the industry totally understand how physically taxing and it is to tour and
2: how, how much oh, of a, totally i mean know, you know I, I deal enough with like you know my you know i've pretty much been suffering from arthritis for quite a while you I know mean, my hands ache my knees are shot and i've had lifelong back problems and then the elbow problems on top of that and like you know i don't need to compound those with other problems so let me like uh control what i can and work on the things that maybe i can't you know yeah
1: no no i think that's i think that's great um and it's we all have to figure out a way to like i said just how do how do you stay in this in the long term how do you keep it going how do you be healthy and and that's it just seems to work for a lot of a lot of uh, my friends out there and i i give them all the respect in the world you know
2: yeah i mean hell exodus now is like four fifths sober you know Zetro doesn't drink Jack doesn't drink Uh, Tom really can't anymore you know he's had a full gastrectomy you know Um, and uh, you know alcohol goes straight down past the stomach where it usually stops for us yeah and uh, you know affect them a lot lot um, you know a lot harder and uh, then there's Lee you know he grew up where vodka was a was an additional course on the meal planner you know that's (laughs)
1: right that was right after uh, baby
2: formula yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty much, probably made with the formula.
1: Exactly. But
2: um, yeah, it's it's kind of like been an easy transition for me. No,
1: that's 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 fantastic. So I wanted to talk about it's so there's all this stuff going on because of the Metallica Black album 30 or was it 30 years 30 year anniversary? I think that's right. And you know they they released this big box set with all these covers, but it's this era I love talking about. Is this is the post Black album kind of the effect it had on the thrash metal community, right? Because it it, sh- it shook everything up. Everyone started making these kind of mid-tempo hard rock inspired records. Whether it's Anthrax with Sound of White Noise or Megadeth with Countdown to Extinction, Testament with the Ritual, um, and then I I listened to your guys' record Force of Habit, which isn't quite that. But it also there's a little bit of that in there. It's a little, there's, there's a little bit there's a little bit
2: before on the floor. There's a lot of fashion on that album. No, I know, but you more know more than all those other albums combined. There's more fast. But yeah, there's there's some more mid-tempo shit. And I think that was a a result. I mean, we we didn't go into it like thinking we had to do anything different, but with impact is imminent, we did. We went in saying we wanted to make the heaviest major label debut that anybody ever heard. And it didn't work out so well for us. Although my favorite riffs live on that record, so I wish I had them back. You know, I'd use them now. <laughs> hey,
1: <laughs> listen, just play them in reverse. Play them in reverse. <laughs> you can. See, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can steal from yourself. I think that's the one rule that I think we've we, we've
2: learned. You can steal from yourself. Uh, I mean, my favorite riff I ever wrote ever is the title track riff on "Impact Is Imminent." There you go. There you go the thing's a string skipping madness you know, before <laughs> people were doing that shit but the, but the one thing i played that one with a uh, talking picks i played that whole album with a super unbendable stainless steel guitar pick jesus
1: that sounds i wanted it metal on metal <laughs>
2: anvil <laughs> anvil called <laughs> yeah it was like yeah totally
1: <laughs> it was aggressive sounding that's for sure no but the one thing i noticed about force of habit it it, not as but the sound of the record though was very different it had a mo- it, it it was the one record I was like going through all the records like oh this sounds it's like not the exodus tone not quite as scooped out a little bit more boxy almost and kind of open sound
2: well, that's the first time we, dr- we started tuning to D yeah. you know the whole guitar down a step so you know you had a different your ears are hearing a different pitch than you were accustomed to, because we were up to there. We were still recording and uh, tracking at like a quarter step down that we had done since our second album. You know, just barely under 440, which everybody knows Pantera yep. for having done it, but we were doing that shit way
0: before those guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I don't know why we just let's tune down this little bit and and uh and then we dropped down to like you know deeper tuning and you know a different sound for sure. And we still tune to that tuning today
1: yeah yeah um but the reason why i kind of brought that up and kind of brought the 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 idea with with the black album is that is you know there's this idea that this was like the dark time for metal or the dark time for thrash but this was the time because of my age i was actually discovering metal and kind of getting in yeah. getting into all these bands so it was this weird thing where the the idea was well metal was dead and i'm like but but then i think about all you know like you know my favorite testament records are all from the mid-90s and the the mid-90s was like when pantera was the sickest band alive and that's when i discovered all the swedish bands whether it's carcass or at the gates or meshuggah yeah um but that was also a time when certain bands from the thrash era were struggling and you, like you guys broke up for X, X amount of years. So do you look at that time period as being this downtime or is it just a downtime for what you were doing in particular?
2: Um, downtime for us, for sure. You know, at that point after Force of Habit, I was not having fun anymore. I didn't enjoy it. I had uh, my first daughter born and like the idea of like being out doing something in a band that I wasn't enjoying being part of or, and uh, sacrificing being away from uh, my kid was just, it was a no brainer. I, I just said, fuck it. You know, I dropped out for a while. I look back now and like, all right, you know, we could have like walked away and signed any one of like a number of like independent record labels and gone back to where we kind of started. And, uh, like everybody else did, you know, Testament, everybody. Um, but, um, you know, shit happens for a reason. It is what it is, and I have no regrets. I got to be a stay-at-home dad. I was a member of the PTA. You know. Yeah. Well, I think, but doesn't yeah, it's amazing?
1: Doesn't that? St- I th- listen. This is just from speaking with you and kind of some observations. I, I think, to some degree, those. And let's say this is actually the basis of this show. I started this show b- because of leaving the band that was like my identity and everything i thought it was and leaving the band became almost like this kind of spiritual experience of like who am i what does it mean who who am i outside of this thing um and so i i i really believe when we step back right all of a sudden we go okay i like i'm a human being and uh there's all this other really important stuff in life that has nothing to do with music or a band or you know I mean
2: I agree I had to discover who I was you know like I was so identified as one thing even myself that's how I identified myself and and uh, I had to learn how to be Gary Holt the guy who um has a day job you know and uh and gets yelled at for doing for not doing one stupid thing you know and worked some shit jobs because I had no job skills whatsoever you know I know my only job skill was playing thrash metal And, uh, the funny thing is now, you know, I've done doing quite well, but I'm fully comfortable in who I am now. And I think that was part of the learning experience of like being thrust into that, you know, like going from like playing theaters to like cleaning up dog shit on an RV lot. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, you know, and washing fucking trailers and shit, you know, and, um, And now i'm perfectly happy you know just i i'm me and then there's me that has the guitar on and they're they're the same but they're two different people and i'm that piece with both of them yeah
1: yeah because well i i think you kind of and this is like me trying to connect i feel understanding these kind of parallels between all that of going there's the rock star but the rock star it's kind of of a mirage and ultimately we're just people and hey this thing that we're doing it's great it's beautiful it's a it's a it's a blessing and it's a privilege to be able to do it but i you know i don't don't know if this is the way you feel but i always feel like i've to some degree i've had it quote unquote taken away from me or it it was something that i i thought i would do and i couldn't do so i'm like i'm
2: okay if it's not there even though i love it does that make sense i agree i agree and but the funny thing is i always felt that way and then the pandemic hit and i kind of i never (laughs) thought how bad i'd miss it
1: yeah well of course but but here's the thing it wasn't just music and like you couldn't go to a show you couldn't
2: you know you couldn't go to a comedy cycle vegas right um just a few weeks ago i was already going as a tourist you know my wife like i need to see some music and like all right, I got a bunch of friends going. I booked the hotel and stuff and uh then other bands, mostly the Europeans, dropped out and they like, you know, gave out made an offer to Exodus and I, was, you know, do you want to play this? I said, I'm already going, sure I'll play. <laughs> <laughs> I was going just to hang out. You know, I need I hadn't seen a show in fucking forever.
1: Yeah. And that and I wanted to, I wanted to see live music, you know. Dude, I mean that's I think one thing we've learned from that that time period. And I've said it on the show before I'll say it again is that That, you know, the, the metal show, the rock show, that's, it's basically church for people without religion. And if we don't, if we don't have that, you know, that it's actually way more important culturally than the records, even like just, we're getting together that getting together to kind of share in this kind of outpouring, right? Like the people in the mosh pit, that is that cathartic release is is it's a need it's not a want you know they need yeah. they need to totally. get that shit out of their totally. out, of, out of their system so yeah so not having that stuff even like you said even if it's not just playing just being able to go and be a part of it is was just fucking tough man so i'm like so happy because megadeth and lamb of god were here uh, a couple weeks ago and then i saw corn uh you know last week and it's like i'm just like thankful you know Hey, I just realized I'm a half
2: hour late for my next interview.
1: Oh well then well then I'm I'm really sorry, but I'm glad <laughs> I got to get you for the amount of time I did get you. I really appreciate God, no, it.
2: I just like wait a minute. I got some other I looked at my phone. Oh shit. Well listen, Gary,
1: me. good luck on the new record. You are <laughs> no, no, amazing thanks, and thank you just for everything, man. You're the best. All right, doc. I'll talk to you soon, man. Be well. Bye.
2: All right. Take care, man. Bye bye. two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. <laughs>
1: have it that was the beatings will continue until morale improves brand new track from exodus from their forthcoming album it's not out yet but it will be out shortly the album is called persona non grata their 11th studio record out november 19th on i believe it's a nuclear blast i don't know who that's out on but it is nuclear blast all right there we go (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Gary Holt, even though it was cut short, but if you look, technically he was supposed to actually get off half hour early. So you got like 30 minutes of bonus Gary Holt. I feel like I got, I pretty much got what I needed. I felt like to have a good conversation, but he's just, I don't know. I feel like Gary specifically what he kind of like talks about this. Like he doesn't understand why, people have uh, gravitated to, towards him in these like uh social media spaces and i think he's just someone who feels 100% authentic and he's listen he's one of the architects of this music that has changed all of our lives so yeah i mean what a what a badass and and you know a few years ago he started like following me on social media and he like likes my stuff and comments and it's still like in the same way he was talking about Rob Halford reaching out to him about his sobriety, how that's like a pinch yourself moment for him. It feels the same way for me to have any real connection with Gary Holt. So all thanks to him for taking his time to be on this show. And, uh, you know, good luck on the new record and getting out there because I think I was thinking about, you know, the blues, you know, everything I'm going through, my blues. And I think a lot of it has to do with not playing out. So I I had the opportunity this last friday to i played it was the first time i was on stage since the pandemic so since i want to say it was february 28th or 29th i played with the wedding band in uh 2020 and i i did one song with this band royalty called if you've been listening to the show you might have heard the song and i basically i was you know got hired to do you know a guest spot on this song and i did all these like acoustic parts and guitar solos and this band was playing for with soulfly And i was invited to come play the show so it was like the first time i was on stage i was i was really nervous it's kind of crazy man when you you ain't you ain't been on stage in a while it doesn't really matter the level of gig or any of that just all that stuff kind of creeps up but i i played well it was fun one song i like that in and out (laughs) uh but i think i need i need to get out there guys the boy needs to get on stage right i think that's where as uh what's his name Austin Powers. There we go. The mojo. That's where the mojo lives, baby. Gotta go find some of that that uh, that mojo. All right. We have a we have a letter. Cause I told you, I said people write me. All right. Give me some advice. Sometimes your boy needs advice uh, about my quandary and how to how to subsist in a abusive environment. How do we how do we exist with that? So we have a gentleman named Sean Skinner, and he goes. All right. Let's uh, read this letter doc i've been listening to god forbid since gone forever great album and i have been a long time listener of your podcast thank you very much sean i've been so happy and proud to see you not hang up your guitar strap like so many others seeing how you keep moving forward with that get or done attitude is inspiring i appreciate that as well i know that things have been very tough the past year with this political cancer culture i think he said i think he meant cancel culture but he said cancer culture but you know basically the same thing uh it's Shoot a shoot a gun blast to most everybody's inhibitions ideas and stamina it's a hard thing to do it's a hard thing to do what you do in this day and age yeah i get it brother try to remember yourself of the good and great things you've done and things you haven't and still want to do <clears throat> once in a while stop he, did, he said that and i'm all <clears throat> i'm all jacked up here in my throat Sit down, smell the roses on your accomplishments. For fuck's sake, you've played in a cover band with Kirk Hammett of Metallica. <laughs> Go tell your 15 year old self that shit. Think about how you felt then, and at the age before any of this shit, and try to keep yourself and try to keep yourself from being jaded. Peace out and best wishes. P.S. Love the new Bad Wolves song, and I love DL's solo stuff as well. I was pumped when you guys broke the news. Well, thank you, Sean. Listen, I, and I received another message like that on uh on Instagram from a from a Jersey homie, you know, very much saying the same thing, kind of like, hey doc, you've done this, you've done that, you gotta. But I, I just think the and I listen, I feel that. I feel that. But I think in, in moments like this, and I think it's in many ways, it's to my strength and my credit in that I tend not to kind of rest on past accomplishments because it's done it's over you know it's only i was into that book the power of now uh, eckhart tolle and a lot of not that I've, i've been up to date on my spiritual mantras as much as i probably should have been or should be currently but that whole power of now like being in the moment and being here and like connecting boom i'm here uh gets you really out of thinking about the past because it feels sorry the past feels dead and even in in the in the regard of like i mean literally like last week is dead and yesterday's dead you just can't you just can't rest on that so it's always about what you're doing and what the momentary thing is um you know and so that is, I, I hear that. I hear like going, hey, I'm this person, I'm that. But I don't know, our, our mindsets are our mindsets. For me, it's kind of, like I say this, like every time I sit down to record a guitar solo, for example, it always feels like I've, alre- I've already recorded my best guitar solos. There's no solos left. That's how I feel. Uh, but I think it's that standard of going, hey, it it ever doing something great always kind of feels a little impossible, um to some degree or maybe listen maybe just with a guitar playing your music I don't know, um, I think that pushes me, so I don't know. Listen, it, it's a, it's a mental game we all play. Like I said, and, and my personality hinders on that back and forth between being very assured and also being very self-doubting. Is what you know what we call the uh, call imposter syndrome you know um and trust me in in many 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 many, many ways i feel very deserving of all the great things that have come my way and then many ways i go i'm just a lucky schlub who kind of got here and i i kind of live in both those realities simultaneously and that's a very i don't know it's just it's just my personality it's just, it's just what it is it's this dichotomy of kind of hypocritical stances that exist simultaneously. I think we're all, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like we're these conundrums were these, these, uh, I know the word we're paradoxes. Every person is kind of a paradox where we represent all the things that we actually represent and kind of all the stuff that we don't, um, it's kind of fundamental to humankind that we're ourselves and also the opposite of ourselves at the same time we're living contradictions um and that's and that's the grapple the the, the way we grapple i don't know i think there's that kind of quote about i don't know who to attribute this to that uh all the dumbest people walking around filled with confidence while the smartest people are filled with doubt and that's not like some offhanded way to kind of compliment myself to go hey doc you're you're a smart guy uh but it's difficult not to kind of connect to that uh that sentiment you know that maybe it's not about being smart but i think it's about people that think deeply about things and that's like, it doesn't necessarily make me smart to anyone, but I'm definitely the type of person who likes to really get in the weeds, go down the rabbit holes and really think about things philosophically. Uh, It's like picking up the, the rock in the, you know, in the, in the woods and all the moss and bugs and everything. That's, that's what it is. When you go deep, you're just going to find, in addition to finding some very interesting things about mother nature, you're also going to find some really ugly things. And so that's kind of an inherent to the processes of, of anyone who's. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I hate to use the word intellectual or, or I don't know if um introspective, maybe that's a better word to put, put it, you know, that's a way of not fluffing your own nuts as it were. But yeah, that's just, that's, that's just what it is. It's part of the, Part, part of what it is and, I, and i'm and I'm, I'm okay with that i'm okay with that but anyway i want to thank sean for the, for the letter and anyone who's who's reached out to me trying to pump me up but that's all good i'm good guys i'm gonna be fine you know why Because things tend to just work out and that's a little line from my sh- the show i've been watching ted lasso season two i posted this on is on twitter i go ted lasso is a antidepressant and I agree with that because it, at its core, it's like, hey, everything's going to be all right one way or another. And I, and I kind of believe that. I, I'm ultimately an optimist. And maybe to some people that's naive, but it's okay. But anyway, uh, it's all back to what I said before about being in the now. It's all about what we're doing now. What I'm doing now, I'm talking to you guys. I'm doing a show. And that's a beautiful thing, and it's a wonderful way to connect. So with that said... I'm going to sign off. uh It's been media day in the NBA last couple of days. I mentioned that. Actually, I don't think I'm, I don't know if I mentioned this. Like I said, I did three versions of my monologue, all of which did not make it. <laughs> so, with that said, NBA is coming back. All right, very exciting. Lakers looking good. Knicks looking good. Let's get ready for that. That's thing. You gotta have things to look forward to. All right. I love y'all. Sorry for the meandering, a lot of meandering on, on today's show with 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 these uh kind of internal conversations, but it's how it goes. All right, we have to accept the whole shebang and bang. Anyway, love y'all and mama's out.